Hello and welcome back. And we back. And we back. It's not. I've got a lane to stay in and I will stay in it. Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. My name is Brandy Miller, and I'm really excited, as excited as one can be when you're talking about white supremacy, but for the second season on reclaiming our theology from white supremacy, because as I said, you cannot undo 400 years of systemic oppression in 10 to 13 episodes, and so we're going to go for a little bit longer on this journey, talking about things like banking models of theology, defensiveness, power hoarding, and many, many, many more. But as we start, we're actually going to start with a foundation on talking about deconstruction more generally. A lot of us have jumped into this journey of reclaiming our theology from white supremacy, not really knowing what to do with all of it. And so this is a conversation with Crystal Cheatham to that end. We talk about what deconstruction is, how to do it, some advice for the journey, and some of the things that make it just complicated. Speaking of complicated, the season of Lent is coming up, a season of prayer and giving and devotion that a lot of us don't know what to do with. So look forward to a devotional again from us over here at Reclaiming My Theology. And with that, enjoy this conversation with Crystal. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and I know it's valuable. So thank you for spending some time with me today. Absolutely. It feels so good to be here. I am so glad it feels that way because that would be pretty bad (laughs) if it felt otherwise. So uh, as we launch, I realize that people may not know who you are, what you do, and I want folks to get to know you a little bit. And so, Crystal, I would love for you to describe for folks who don't know you, what does it mean to be you? What does it mean to be me? I feel like that is such a big open-ended question. Um, I think I'll just like start listing stats. I am a black lesbian uh, creative and um, I've been a Christian all my life. I was raised a fund- I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist. And um, when I came out as a lesbian, I had to kind of figure out who I was in the world. Mm-hmm. And that involved doing some social justice work with Soul Force mm-hmm. and uh, an- a couple other organizations like that. And eventually I founded our Bible app, which is a progressive Bible app with uh, daily devotionals and you know, like 400 authors have written for us so far. Yeah, that's, that's my, that's what I do. But I think I would classify myself as a, as an artist more than a tech person or a writer or anything like that. Yeah. What does that, what does that mean to you? Describe art as you, as you understand it. Oh, I just feel like this progressive Christian space that I have found myself in is my medium. And I'm just, I just love figuring out new ways to create content, to share the message, to build community. Um, And so I'm not really dedicated to one particular way of doing that. There's just so many ways that we can continue to build our platform and, and further our engagement with folks who are on this journey. Amazing. Can you, for folks who haven't heard of our Bible app yet, which if y'all have not gotten it, downloaded it, it's an easy download. You should jump on, support their work. There'll be more opportunities to think about that later. But can you describe just some highlights for you of our Bible app, some things you're proud of, some things you're excited about that you all have done or things that you've learned along the way? Yeah, I'm really proud of our daily devotionals. I just feel like the people who are sitting down and writing and theologizing their personal experiences are cut above the, the fray. Um, And that's because they are including the work that needs to get done in our social settings, Um, not just 
uh, self-help mm. um, as a, some of our more evangelical uh, writers do. Um, we also have a collection of podcasts and this podcast is on there. We found out about you, Brandy, and asked if we could throw that on there. But our podcasts are, are all vetted and uh, we make sure that you know, if you are recovering from religious trauma, you're not going to be triggered mm -hmm. by any of that stuff. And we also have multiple Bible translations. And I'll be the first to say that I think we need to continue to add to that section and make sure we have more Bibles. But there are a few to get started. And uh, last but not least, we have a community space where you can jump into a chat room with other folks also looking for community, especially right now uh, during this pandemic. We find ourselves isolated and unable to go to church if we do attend. And so that's a great way to just meet somebody in Zimbabwe who is uh, also on the same journey as you. You know, it's it's kind of a free for all. I love that. I love that, that you even it's like a low key flex, like, oh, this is a global community that we're engaging with, that we're creating. Uh this is a global thing that's happening that. I think sometimes when we talk about progressive spaces or deconstruction, as we'll continue to talk about as our primary topic today, it can often become very Western world, US centric. And so I love that you just kind of flex like, no, this is happening all over the place. And you can be it a part is. of that with other people. We're all doing it together. Which is really so important. good. Well, I'd love to hear, a little, so we're going to talk today about deconstruction, because I realized that when I launched this podcast, we just jumped right into talking about white supremacy because that is my wheelhouse. But in talking about white supremacy, the undercurrent of all of it really is this deconstruction of things in our faith that have either been hurtful, violent, or even just at a basic level haven't served us in whatever identities that we hold or the ways that we know the world, our epistemological development, if we want to be use, you know, $200,000 education words about it. And so I want to talk about deconstruction some and help to maybe pave a pathway for folks who are feeling overwhelmed, not sure, where, not sure of where to go or how to engage, to know, yeah, what does it mean to deconstruct? How do we do that healthily? And I feel like you are a perfect person to talk to about that as you serve in some ways as a guide in digital space for people who are doing that through the resources that you create. So as we start, I want to talk, so I recognize that there's a way that we could intellectualize this pretty heavily, but I heard you say even in your intro, like, you grew up in a certain type of Christianity. And then when you, when you started to engage with your identities and come out, that there was a shift there. And that to me feels like a spark of deconstruction. And so as I ask you what deconstruction is, I don't want to just assume that you'll just intellectualize a thing because that feels like even an attribute of the, of the deconstruction of white supremacy to begin with. So if you want to talk a little bit about your deconstruction journey and what deconstruction is to you, I'd love that for a guidepost for folks. I, I really think that... Any of us who have who have lived through um, Christian culture and learned Christianese and used the Bible to inform the way that we lived our everyday lives have had this experience where we're suddenly jarred from that that sleepwalk where you're just like Wednesday night I go to to prayer meeting and for me Saturday we go to church and uh, Friday night we're doing uh, a worship service and blah and you know you're just you're just going and uh, you're you're listening to the the language and the dogma and it you just you feel it so heavy in in your body that you don't even second guess the next step you know the next bite the next toe in the water kind of a thing I want I always think of that song by Weezer if you want to destroy my sweater hold this thread as I walk away you know mm -hmm. 
um, for me, that jarring moment was coming out, was realizing that um, my orientation, my, I was attracted to women and my orientation was not something that I had ever talked about in my entire life, you know? And so on the cusp of that, when I saw the, the chain metal of my faith have a chink in it, you know, there was a chink in the armor, I realized that there were a lot more things that, that I needed to start asking questions about and stop being a zombie uh, with. And so holding that thread as I walked away, I really started to see this, uh, I wanna say this, yeah, the, the armor, the exoskeleton of this, of this faith really start to unravel and fall, mm -hmm. and fall apart. Um, and I really do believe that, I think that religion is, is important. Um, I love the tradition and, and you know, I love the, how it enables us to build community. But um, something I feel is really dangerous is when you exalt religion more than you do, the, the spiritual center, the core of it. I think spirituality is supposed to be organic and it's supposed to evolve as we do as humans, as societies and the world evolves. And the danger is to use the exoskeleton as, as a prison and not allow what is organic underneath to bloom and grow. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that has been my my work over the past couple of years. Uh, it, it, my work has been to to uh, kind of cut out those parts that seem to keep my faith from from growing and, and exploring in its in its fullest. Yeah. So in that way, I'm hearing that that deconstruction is is this journey of letting the thing that's happening in us, the organic thing, the spiritual thing exist outside of the framework that's been given as a safe quote unquote, safe or right or true manifestation of what God would want for us. I think that there are ways that that gets built up that make it really hard for that kind of expression of faith to be fully known for a lot of us. Like for me, in my own experience, one of the ways that we kept that religious structure at the center more than the thing that was happening in us or even knowing ourselves well in relationship to God, it was like we always just tried to become more like God so we'd be less like ourselves. But... One of, well, so I guess that's one of the things is that there was the sense that to be like Christ was to be like your pastor, which was to be less like yourself and to lose yourself, to die to yourself, which I think, you know, right, Jesus says those things, but I don't think it's, it's Princess Bride. I don't think that means what you think it means. And there's ways that we built these carbon copies of what's like spiritual and relational piety looked like and then enforced them through fear, actual violence, emotional violence, spiritual violence. And we did that all the while critiquing everything out there, because I think if you critique other people enough, you never have to look inwardly. And so I, I always say that it's, well, well, one of the things that was true for me in my background is that I was given a Bible and the book, The Kingdom of the Cults, within like a week of each other. And so what that taught me is that as I learned the truth about God, I need to learn the lack of truth about other people and therefore reaffirm the truth about who God is. And so I think that like that kind of rationalizing and building a fortress of or an exoskeleton, as you said, of books and pastors and trusted people and resources and conferences that we thought were great, all created a context where doing that exploration that you were talking about feels nearly impossible. Impossible. Um, and the exploration is is what you're supposed to be doing. Um, I for, I'm really bad at this point in my life and remembering where the verse is from, uh, but there's that there's that really good verse about um, 
when you were when you were a child you you drank milk you know and uh when you're an adult you eat meat you know and we need to allow ourselves to evolve as god intended and start to search out those things that are really going to feed us there's something really infantile about being raised in a faith and never taking it for your own and exercising it and for me deconstruction has been the application of the tools that i learned as a child and that means going out and figuring out if if what you were told about uh purity culture is true you know mm -hmm. if if uh if you do kiss a significant other or have premarital sex what does that actually do does it does it destroy your ability to have a healthy sex life, right? I mean, like, um, I have a podcast called uh, Lord Have Mercy, and, and it's all about purity culture, and we talk about sex a lot. Um, and that's one of the first things that I, as, as a lesbian who was suddenly engaged uh, with my orientation, had to think about, you know? Mm -hmm. How am I gonna process all of this? Um, I believe that the heart of deconstruction is, is doing the work and taking the taking the, 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 the rhetoric and the concept and actually turning it into application and understanding. Yeah, and it moves our faith endeavors from just being like in our hearts and our minds or even just like evangelism or something to being something that we actually apply to ourselves in a way that makes us more free. Like I think there's a way that pre-deconstruction, a lot of us see are told that freedom, like it's for freedom that Christ set us, Christ set us free is all about you do the right stuff and then God doesn't get mad at you or God doesn't send you to hell or something instead of, hey, actually freedom for you means being more fully yourself, not trying to do all of these things to be other and to be just like God in a way that God never anticipates that we would be. Uh -huh. And so in that way, oftentimes I describe deconstruction as standing in the middle of a house that you've been living in your whole life that has mold in the walls. It has a faulty foundation. It's, it's kind of messed up in a bunch of ways. And sometimes the deconstruction journey can feel like you just start to take a sledgehammer to all of the walls, you rip out all of the stuff, and then you just leave it in a pile around you. And so I think for a lot of folks who are in their deconstruction journey right now, it's actually not a very positive experience, because I think that for folks who have been doing the deconstruction journey for a while, it can you get this like liberated, free yeah. expectation. But when you're in the journey, it feels more like everything that you've ever known is rubble around you. It's terrifying. And it's so terrifying. And I think that that is often started by, and you've alluded to this in a couple of ways, by a catalytic moment. Like for you, it was coming out. But can you describe some other catalytic moments or catalytic questions that people might ask that take them into deconstruction from your experience? Oh, wow. You know, I think it is it is anything. You know, mm -hmm. um, a young adult praying and their prayer not being answered mm -hmm. um, can jar them out of that belief that, God is constantly listening, you know, and God is going to answer you no matter what. Or um, somebody experienced experiencing a death in the family mm -hmm. and just being so angry at God. Like, how could you take this person away from me? Mm -hmm. um, those big questions of of if if this if this person who caused me harm asked for forgiveness from God and passed away, does that mean that they will be in the same heaven as I am? And I just can't believe it. And then you need to, uh, and you actually do start to tear apart. You and it, it erodes, it erodes at your belief system, right? Mm -hmm. To the point where you start to see the cracks in the wall, um, and how 
this this thing that's not true is also linked to this thing that's probably not true that's linked to this thing that's not true and the next thing you know you're standing in a room uh, of rubble around mm -hmm. you but i think a really important part of deconstruction is the reconstruction mm -hmm. is nailing down okay i have more questions now than i ever did but mm -hmm. for sure i believe that god is still real and I cannot stop having faith in that and knowing that I am a spiritual person. If God is real or not real, I am a spiritual person. Mm -hmm. And so now let me start to do the work of reconstruction. And reconstruction comes with community. It is, it is incredibly difficult and I feel harmful to try and reconstruct your faith on your own because you're just going to be chasing your tail. We mm -hmm. need the influence of of peers, of those around us. We need the influence of, like you said, of, of books, of, of those who are thinking outside of the box and engaging with God in a new way. I want to tell you that I have, I have found God in, in the, in the most unbelieving of people, you know, just living in Philadelphia. When, when I, when I came out and I moved to Philadelphia and I started to, uh, uh, engage with the world and be part of quote unquote the world, I realized that they, they weren't heathens, you know, they weren't, mm -hmm. you know, blood hungry, you know, you know, druggies who were constantly drinking all the time. And like these, these, these hobos that the, that the world or that the, that my Christian space was constantly uh, framing them as I realized mm -hmm. that these people are, are, are j just as, as eager to be good, to, uh, allow good things to come to them to help other people as as I was and that experience informed my view of God I thought if God can can love these people then God can love me and maybe some of the the changes that I will be making in my life yeah <sighs> sorry that was a rant no it's great and it and it feels like in some ways that the reconstruction so even as you as you share that I also grew up in a community where there was us and there was them and those people out there who were thinking for themselves, who were figuring things out along the way, were somehow farther away from God than I was. And I was like, oh, it took me a long time to recognize, oh, we're all actually figuring this out. And when we figure that out together, it's way better. I don't know, I'm out here rhyming today. And it reminds me of the story in Luke 5, where Jesus invites Levi, this tax collector, to follow him. And he puts together this kind of weird community of people and then goes to Levi's house and they have a bunch of food with these other tax collectors. And the religious leaders of the day show up and I have so much compassion for the Pharisees who are these well-meaning religious people who see their religious expression eroding as Jesus hangs out with those people. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them or he's not like mean to them. He just says like, hey, I didn't come for those of you who are like religiously well. I came for the sick. I didn't come for those who have everything. I came for those who don't. And for you to be a part of the thing that I'm doing, for you as a religious leader to be a part of the thing I'm doing is going to require you to discard this checklist of who you think belongs and to instead be here with people and be shaped by people and to open that up. And that's when he gives that famous, and I think this has become like a verse for a lot of people who are deconstruction, deconstructing, deconstructing, which is like, you can't put old wine into a new wine skin because the, the new will burst the old and it will destroy really both of them. And so I think that a lot of deconstruction for many of us is 
as we encounter people and experience, it's not just ideas that are different than what we were told was good. We find the divine there, but then realize that the thing that we were doing before doesn't actually fit with the thing that's happening in us now. And that it's not bad that there was an old thing necessarily, but there is a necessity for a new thing that is more inclusive, more broad, more good. And so that, that story came to mind as you were speaking. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great, I think a great way to, to conceptualize it and, and start to really feel it and understand, understand it. I know that in Adventism, rules were what governed our relationship with God. And it was, are you keeping the Sabbath day? And this, um, keeping the Sabbath day means not working on that day. And if you are, you're sinning. And that sin just goes so deep into your soul mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and somehow makes you unpalatable to God, you know? Um, and to be governed by such intense rules disallow you to experience God in new and creative ways Mm -hmm. to understand that God, I mean, this is one of the things that we were told as kids was if you go into a movie theater, God doesn't go with you. The angels don't go with you. Right? Like how terrifying to have this belief like hovering over you that there are places in the world you can go that God will not be. And I think that is, that's the biggest, I think that's the biggest thing that I have deconstructed in my walk of faith is that there are very dark places where you can find God, very dark and creepy places where you will engage with God. And, and it is, it is your right as a human. If it is, if it's your choice to go into those dark places, it's your right to do that and to go and find God there too. And I think what is challenging is that there's some, there's, there's really two roads on that. There's some of us go into dark places and find God there. And some of us just because of our life experiences, our identities end up in dark places and have to make sense of that. And I think when our Christianity or our faith experience with Jesus is like so wrapped up in what you can or can't do, it says where God will or will not be, which to me feels like this dishonoring of this kind of core doctrine of the incarnation that says that God comes to the darkest place, not to just fix, but to be and to model how to be human. And so much of our faith experiences don't rely around this ability to show up and to make sense of it, but rather say, I need to make sense of it before I do anything. And I think that there is... There's so many things in that that feel so hard. I was just thinking about your story about like theaters and I'm like, oh, with HBO Max in your house now, the Lord ain't nowhere. <laughs> like, like in the digital I world. Right? <laughs> but I think that like so much of the deconstruction journey for those of us who hold marginalized identities, it's because we end up in those dark places to start, not because we go there ourselves. I think I learned that reality that you're talking about of going into dark places and finding God there when I was a campus minister at... At the time, it was like the Princeton Review's most godless school in the nation. It's the most place. It's the most fun place I ever did ministry at Reed College in Portland. And, you know, the birthing place of Antifa and the radical left democratic socialists who are just trying to dance and sing their way into oppressing conservative people. But I was there and there's a pretty strong drug culture at Reed. So students use a lot of drugs, try a lot of drugs in a pretty safe environment for them to do so. And I had students regularly say that they were having, they were tripping in some way. They went into a dark spot and then had like these really creepy dreams. And as they had these creepy dreams, 
they would come to me and be like, I think I saw Jesus in my dream. Like, I think when I was high, I passed out, had this dream, and I think Jesus encountered me there. And that doesn't seem right. And I was like, but why wouldn't that be? Like, why wouldn't that be the place that at the darkest spot, the most desperate spot that you find, the most helpless you feel, that Jesus would show up and demonstrate God's love for you in some way? And I found that that was a true sentiment in a lot of my work there was like, I did a lot of time. This is not a thing I have a skill set in, but I was doing a lot of dream interpreting for people because they were having these dark encounters that we didn't know what to do with. And so we were just like, well, maybe that's where God wanted to come and find you. So I hear a lot about what you're saying in there. And that there is those kind of disruptions or catalytic moments in dark spaces often initiate our deconstruction. And I think for a lot of people, they just don't stay on the journey. They just they just go. And so I guess I'm wondering if you have thoughts on, or maybe what are some things that you wish you knew going into your deconstruction journey that you would give to other folks as they're on it? Because what we're describing here is a, a little bit of a bleak expression of what it means to come to know ourselves and to know our communities with this abstract vision of glory in the future. So what do you wish you would have known as you began your deconstruction journey back when? I really wish I would have known that I wasn't doing it alone, that there were very many people doing the same thing. And um, not just lay people, um, but theologians uh, were going to school and openly studying a new and progressive and inviting way of understanding the text. Um, and so they were Christians and still learning about white supremacy and what it has done to the Christian faith. And they were talking about it and they were writing about it and they were preaching about it and they were creating groups about it. Um, and I was missing out on all of that because I didn't know what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. um, one of the first projects I did out of my master's program was called the Identity Kit Project, which was essentially a community center in a box for, L for LGBTQ youth in fundamentalist spaces. Mm -hmm. And it was everything that I wish that I knew when when I was a kid and first encountered in myself this this otherness, right? Mm -hmm. I wish that I knew about the Trevor Project. I wish that I knew about community centers. I wish that I knew uh, the alphabet soup of LGBTQ. Um, because when I came out, my mom asked me if I was like Ellen or if I was like Chaz Bono. And I was just like, what? You know, <laughs> like what a crazy thing to ask, like a young woman anyway. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I, I was I was so in, in interested in passing that on to folks, and I feel I have had that same feeling uh, again as I as I evolve uh, into the progressive Christian woman that I am today. I really wish that there were more books on the shelf at uh, say Barnes and Noble if it was still a big thing that were that were about um, sex education that were about um, more than just this, this rock hard purity culture where you're not allowed to engage in your sexuality until you're married and then it's okay. That, that, that's the point where you want to figure out, you know, what, who you're attracted to and, and, and what you enjoy and, and what your body can do. Like that's insane. But anyway, I just, I wish that there were more, I wish that there were more books and that has been my work with our Bible app to help create more voices and more media that, that talks about, you know, deconstruction and reconstruction. That's good. 
Yeah, and I think that even as you as you say that, I think a lot of us maybe grew up in spaces where asking questions wasn't even on the table to begin with, let alone knowing that people were asking those questions outside of us. And I think that those people who were... So I remember uh, when I was kind of in the, the throes of my teenage years, Rob Bell was coming on the scene. And I remember when Love Wins came out. And Love Wins is basically just one giant question where he's like, is there a hell? Would a loving God do that? Does that make sense? And evangelical Christians were like, he is a demon who is like just throwing people away from the Lord. He is the worst man. And it was because he asked a question. He doesn't even come to really any conclusions in the scripture. He's just like, or in the, he doesn't really come to any conclusions in his book. He just says like, here are some questions I have and here are some musings I have on why that is an important question to ask. And what that revealed to me was that the church has so created in a lot of spaces, a lack of a lack of value for asking questions and for engaging with hard things. And instead, we would rather ask a question to a pastor who's steeped in paternalistic ideologies that then gives us what they think is right. Then if we don't do that, we're punished somehow. And so questions actually are a thing that become a subject of punishment, because if you don't ask, at least you don't, you don't bear the consequence of the thing that you didn't ask about. And what that reveals to me is that there's a lot of ways that Christianity is framed as a timeless truth, a, tri a timeless true set of doctrines and ideas that tell us one thing about a God who's never changing. And you could pick that apart all day, but it, it, it's that idea versus the idea that God is who we see God revealed to be in the scriptures, which is this complicated being who people are making sense of over time in their own cultures, in their own context. And as culture progresses, the way that they experience, hear from, engage with God changes. And so I think that there's some ways that even as I think about how my church engaged with Genesis 1 through 3, which, right, you can do, you can trace almost any oppressive ideology back to someone's weird interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3. But one of the things that I was told, especially even, even as a, like, cis straight person around sexuality was like, well, God didn't make queer people in the beginning, so that's bad. And I'm like, but I had this moment when I was in, like, in college where I was like, yeah, but God didn't make your iPhone or your house or the clothing you wear. And we feel really comfortable making concessions for certain things and asking questions and progressing around certain things. But things that challenge this kind of cis hetero white patriarchy, we feel very defensive about without actually critiquing the inconsistencies in how we are engaging with those things. And so I think even this like Genesis, like, well, it wasn't there in the beginning, therefore God doesn't like it. Or this thing doesn't have a one-to-one -one translation in the Bible. So we're just doing it. I'm like, okay, yeah, then maybe the idea is that we find the principles of the text, not this kind of literalism that keeps us bound to a thing that God doesn't seem to care that we stay bound to. Mm. And in that there is this comfort with, I know you're just talking about, you know, being punished from a pastor but there is this this comfort with carrying a burden of having faith in God, right? This like if it doesn't it doesn't feel great. We know it doesn't feel great to uh, not be able to talk about this one thing or um, only have to uh, obey this letter of the law and while everybody else in the world is doing it, right? We know that it hurts us. And so that's how we find our love for God, which mm -hmm. is just, it's just, it's a complete lie. You know, God 
doesn't want you to suffer. God doesn't want you to suffer. Um, I was I was raised with the belief that the the holiest way to to keep your body in health was to be a vegetarian. And today we know that there are very many different diets that help each individual. You know, it could mm-hmm. be based on your blood type or where you're from in the world or whatever. Um, and the idea that God would want me to be a vegetarian, knowing that that's kind of unhealthy for for me and my body type, but would require that of me and want me to be in pain my entire life just so that I could somehow glorify this human idea of who God is and what God needs is ridiculous. And I feel like deconstruction allows you to call that out and say, that doesn't make sense because God made my body. You know, God wants me to feel good in my body and have health. And if, and if eating red meat every once in a while allows me to have that health, I'm sure that God wants that for me. Mm. I think this concept of suffering is really interesting because a lot of us have been taught what you're saying, like that suffering is this thing that God wants for you and that is somehow more holy, right? We talk about revelation where it's the saints who were martyred are the most holy of all of the saints. And like, there are these, all these kind of conversations about like sacrificing one life for one's friends and not connecting that to being anti-empire or doing the things that Jesus was actually doing, but just being like, Suffering is this inherent thing that God wants for us, rather than a natural consequence of living the Jesus way in worlds that are capitalistic and greedy and oppressive and dominating. And I think that there is a way that when our church or religious expressions normalize suffering, it sets us up for a lot of oppressive systems that we then have to deconstruct later. And so if we assume that suffering is a normal thing that God wants, that dying to yourself looks like giving up everything about who you are, then of course we would say to LGBT people, hey, you you just suffer. It's just part of your life. Like celibacy, you suffer. You, you know, you're, you're lonely for the Lord. You're, you're lonely because it's a holy thing that God's giving you. Like Paul was single, so you just do it. Or for communities of color, it's like, well, you suffer, but God will God will reward you in the end. You just submit to your master's. And so I think that there's ways that because we normalize suffering as a concept in scripture, that when many of us start to deconstruct out of a place of understanding oppression more deeply, all of it, like you're saying, like you said in the beginning, starts to unravel. The chinks in the armor become so exposing that it's too hard to even rebuild from there. And so I hear that conversation about suffering, and I just name that and affirm that as a really important one that a lot of folks may experience pretty viscerally. Mm, yeah. I And... And whether or not you believe that, you know, it start it allows you to ask the question, it allows you to engage, it allows you to move in a direction where you are able to have a better understanding of it, whether it's right for you personally or not, you're able to stop judging other people because of what's right for them and what they have found uh, enables them to become closer to God or not. Mm-hmm. I really think that deconstruction is is a lot about respecting other people's journeys. And mm-hmm. um, one of the tenets of our Bible app is that we, we publish things that are for the agnostic and the fundamentalist alike. And mm. we do not pass judgment because we believe that this, this, this spiritual journey that we're all on is less of a, of a ladder of a, you know climbing upwards mm-hmm. and more of a stream that we're all wading into and mm-hmm. sometimes that stream is is uh, is deep and swift and sometimes that stream is shallow and calm but 
we are we are all we are all moving forward in 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 our in what it means to be spiritual people together there are there's no such thing as backsliding there's no such thing as backsliding we're just figuring it out (laughs) I think that because many of us were taught truth as a monolith, like a thing that that is that is just solid that you enter into or you leave. Yeah, it's it's black and white. And so we don't have any space to go like, wait a second. Everything in me tells me that that's not a thing. And if we and we don't make space to ask questions because we think that it, we're taught in some ways that it's wrong or evil to question, because if you question, you're actually questioning God. And I don't see that modeled in Jesus at all, right? Jesus doesn't demonize people or get mad at people or clap back at people for asking questions. The things that Jesus most clap backs at, claps back at, the things that Jesus most claps back at people for is when they say a definitive thing about a group of people who they are seeking to exclude or to punish somehow. And then Jesus is like, no, that's not what we're doing here. And so I think that the expansiveness of how Jesus deconstructs even his disciples' sense of who is in and who is out, gives us a pathway where we can say like, hey, you get to be included just because you exist and because it's good that you are included and because it's good that you're here and because the table of Jesus is big enough. And the metaphor for me that feels so important that Jesus uses, that is used about Jesus all in Luke especially, is this metaphor of the table. That Jesus shows up to all of these meals as a guest and he automatically just feels like he gets to be the host of it. He makes these awkward interactions. He calls out people. He insults the, the people who are supposed to be the hosts. Because Jesus sees the table as being his. That the table belongs to God, not to the people who seem to represent God somehow. And when God has the center of the table, when God is the host of the table, there is enough room for everybody. It is when we try to make the table our own, when we try to make this religious thing our own, that we create oppressive structures and systems that would exclude people that Jesus has already set a place for. We start to wall off the table and theologize the table instead of just being like, hey, what happens when we're all here together figuring this out and learning to respect each other's humanity, even if we don't understand? Even if we don't understand, I feel like that's the biggest part. Um, I see God as a God of gray area, of gray space, of living in the in-between, of of engagement. For, for those of us who have been trying to understand what it means to be LGBTQ, we think about, you know, not knowing the answer um, and people saying, well, God made Adam and Eve, you know, and it's not natural if it's not, if it wasn't mentioned in that Genesis story. But I love, one of my friends was talking about how God spoke into existence the dawn, uh, the day and the night, you know, but never once talked about the, the sunrise and sunset. You know, like these in-between moments between dawn and dusk, I mean, are just there and they're, you know, arguably the most beautiful part of the day Um, doesn't mean that they didn't exist. It doesn't mean that we don't experience them, Um, but that God did create them. And God is, is so in those, in those moments that we as humans have a visceral reaction to the beauty of a sunset or a sunrise Um, to the point where we like, I know that I feel more worshipful when when I get to experience those moments overlooking God's great creation. Um, and so I just, I if I say anything during this chat, uh, Brandy, I want to say that that God is with us in, in the in-between when we are in the gray area between a yes and a no, between a truth 
and a falsehood or a right and a wrong. Like if you can bear with God to experience the discomfort of the unknown, you will, you will grow in the most profound and beautiful ways and unexpected ways, and it will be its own reward. Mm. At least that's my truth. <laughs> well, I think that's also like a, if, for those of us who are listening, who are real Bible engaged, I think that's why Jesus spends all of his time walking everywhere. It doesn't just show up as like an adult person in the world. Like that Jesus spends so much time in the in-between and encountering people who exist between one city and another, between one religious expression and another, between one job and another. And that all of that is a journey, not a destination that we get to. It's not just like now you're spiritual or now you're Christian enough or now you're holy enough or now you're righteous enough. It's you are. And because you are, we are together and it is good and it is good to be in the process. And so I appreciate what you're saying about that. I do want to pivot just for a few minutes because I think that a lot of us who are in a deconstruction journey want the thing that you're describing, want to be able to be in the gray, but we feel and experience the pushback from the communities that we've been a part of, our families, our friends, our churches, as we deconstruct, who have a lot of concerns that we're doing that thing that you're describing that's backsliding, that is we're leaving the faith, we're being co-opted by the culture. Um, I recently heard a like kind of famous mega church pastor in Portland describing deconstruction saying there's this healthy kind of deconstruction where we use the Bible to critique the culture, but the deconstruction of the day is using the culture to deconstruct the Bible. And that's not good. And I was like, or what an overly simplistic way of discarding a lot of people's experience. And that man has an assumption that the lens by which he reads the scriptures is an inherently good and God one that doesn't change with culture, that the thing, the way he reads the Bible gets to be a holy way of interpreting the culture rather than saying, God is progressing with humanity. God is not stagnant and God is not whatever. And so I think that there's pastors like that, or there are leaders or family members who, when we begin to deconstruct, don't know what to do with us, don't know how to be with us. And so I was wondering if you could give some advice or some thoughts about how to be in that gray of our faith when we are not supported or cared for well by the people around us, who raised us, who indoctrinated us, who taught us? Yeah, it is a disheartening space to be in and can lead to um, it, it, what feels like chosen loneliness, you know, like I chose to believe these things or do this inter internal work so I deserve you know what's what's happening in my life and and folks turning their backs on me and I just want to reiterate like I said earlier what's so important about this this being in the unknown and living in the discomfort is finding community to be there with you um, and that is why in our Bible app we added that community space because we know you know if it's it's a lot it's hard to process things alone and to build and to think that, oh my, am I the only person who doesn't see God this way? You know, when we live in these religious spaces, our worlds are very small mm. and we have a hard time, you know, grasping a, a world or a knowledge outside of them. Um, but once you start to engage with other folks, I think my, 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 favorite place to find new voices is on Twitter. That's mm -hmm. how I found Brandy. <laughs> I love, I love finding new people on Twitter, uh, because 
you know, their work is already out there to, to see and read and engage with. Mm -hmm. And, and um, some of my best friends uh, that I have today, I have met online. Um, and honestly, for me here in Philadelphia, I didn't, I didn't go through the, the deconstruction and reconstruction of my life having those, those strong relationships of people who could help me through it. Yeah. Um, everybody who has helped me through my deconstruction has been have been folks that I've met at conferences yeah. that, you know, I have met uh, through my work with our Bible app and, and finding new writers. Um, and that's what I would encourage you to do is to reach out. You're, you're going to need support um, outside of what you already have. And it'll be so healthy and beautiful. It will be helpful um, if, if you start to make those moves. Mm -hmm. There's a world that's, that's welcome and, and able to help you. Yes, and that even beginning to ask those questions is so hard when we try to do it alone. And I know that a lot of us may actually feel like, oh man, I don't know any of those people. I don't know any people who are asking the same questions. And I think that's where Twitter becomes a really beautiful place. Because it doesn't even mean that you have to be interacting conversationally. It's just overhearing conversations that save us from the gaslighting of our faith experiences that have told us that we can't ask these questions. Yeah, And I think that there's ways that it also decenters this kind of value of white supremacy that is individualism that says, like, I can just like figure this out by myself and then I'll enter into a community that's more just or more good or whatever. And I think I keep hearing this invitation from you to enter into the communal, to enter, enter into this space of finding people to just to banter with, to figure things out with, to ask questions with. And I want to name in the midst of that, that for many of us, asking questions is the scariest part. Yeah. That we feel like it's the it's the Weezer quote. It's here's the thread. And we're like, how far will this unravel? And am I ready for this kind of unraveling? And I can't say yes or no for you. But what I can say is that not all questions lead to a desolate future where you have nothing left that you believe. Right. There, are there are some things that I have questions, questioned really rigorously. And I've come to the same conclusion that I knew before. But I did the work. And a lot of this journey is about doing the work, not just about tossing out everything to be some progressive vision of Christian. I think that that is a, that's not the right way to do that. I think that a lot of us experience progressive culture and then we're like, how do we just like smash our faith into that instead of saying, what is the expression of my faith that comes out of my understanding of the world? And how can I give that to other people? And how can I learn to admit when I'm wrong? Because then I think in a lot of our deconstruction journeys, we become a little insufferable. I, I do want to name that. <laughs> For the people around us, we suddenly come back. Like this happens. I talk to my students about this all the time. We learn a lot of new things. We suddenly feel very enlightened. And we go back to our families and we're like, here's all of the reasons you're wrong. Here's why you are just like an oppressive ass out here in the world. Not realizing that like you've always been the kid to your family and suddenly you changing in like a million different ways doesn't mean that they see you differently yet and the ways that we come to people who used to know us and who aren't asking the same questions we are matters a lot and so having the communities like you're saying crystal outside of the people who have known us for our whole lives really matters because most of us when we're deconstructing are not super pleasant to be around i sure know i wasn't i was mostly depressed and sad kind of arrogant and destroying lots of things around me right. regularly. The only place a prophet isn't welcome is in their own home, their own hometown, basically. <laughs> yes. You know, it's like, yeah, you, you need other people. You really do. Yes, that is. <laughs> Number one. That is so real.
And so much of that is just to know that we're not crazy. It's to know that the questions that we have are valid, that they exist out there, that other people have gone ahead of us in the journey. It's why I think possibility models are so important. Like why it is important to know that there are queer Christians of color who are creating resources and apps that help invite people in, that there are indigenous people who are reconnecting with land and creator and Jesus, that there are people who are questioning sex and hell and church structures and tithing and all of those things. And that as we know that there are other people who are asking the questions, we feel less alone and us feeling less alone, I think is the thing that saves us and maintains us and sustain and sustains us in this deconstruction journey. It's yes, it does sustain us, but also what we believe affects so much of who we are uh, in the world and how we treat people. And I, also, I almost believe that it is, is your, uh, your duty um, as, as a person in, in this society to analyze and understand what it is that you believe so that you can treat people better. Because uh, what, you be- what, what your faith is, is it, it, what is the word? It... Um, it encourages it. It show it teaches you who to uh, who to vote for. It teaches you. It informs who you uh, what businesses you patronize. Um, it informs how you will you will offhandishly treat people uh, when you are in public. You know the the waiter, the the homeless person on on the street, and so sitting down and actually engaging with the faith, the principles that have made you who you are versus just allowing them to exist without have ever to have just allowing somebody else to have created this, this, this dogmatic system around you that you just kind of accept um, is, is sloppy Christianity. Um, <laughs> I feel like Christianity is supposed to be a practice, you know, and if, and if you're, so comfortable that you're not engaging with it, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And it feels like in many ways, teaching us to recognize the air that we breathe around us and if it's toxic or not and to leave a room. Like a a lot of, I think deconstruction is you're in a room with a little bit of poison that your body's become accustomed to. You shouldn't be breathing poison. (laughs) You get out of the room. And like, as you get out of the room being like, wait, is there poison in this air in the new room I'm in? Right. Is it a different type of poison? Yeah. How do we breathe clean air? Yeah. And so I think that I, I love what you're, what you're saying there, because I think it is just asking like, how do we not be insufferable, violent, oppressive people by nature of the things that we believe? And I think that the, like that Christians often exactly. do that by assuming like our inherent, either our inherent goodness or our inherent sinfulness that's inevitable. I think if we assume that we're inherently good, we are not receptive to feedback. And if if we assume that we are inherently sinful, we don't take responsibility for anything that we do. Like I heard people after the siege of the Capitol being like, we'll all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I was like, oh, fuck off. Like, really? Like, you're trying to evade accountability by just assuming this a spiritual tenant that is actually causing you to have space to be oppressive and violent or to justify or to be complicit in violence. And so I think that you're right that as we engage, we need to be people who 
deconstruct not just because it's good for us but because it's good for our relationship with other people and with the divine and with the planet that we live on that sustains us be a good citizen deconstruct your faith <laughs> i'm gonna I make that, that into a t-shirt that should be our that, that's probably our tagline here is be a good citizen deconstruct <laughs> your faith yes i love so it so I, I would say that as we as we begin to close out i think that um deconstruction can feel a lot like the mind blown emoji that we just we hear things and we're like how did i never see scripture that way how did i ever think that it was that this thing i was doing was okay how did i not ask this question why did i treat people this way and i think there's a lot of guilt and shame that comes up in that process where we remember who we've been and we have to choose who we're going to be and so i just want to say to people like be gentle with yourself in your deconstruction journey it is a journey, not a thing that you do all at once. And I think that there is a disservice that progressive culture does, and especially where, like the world that we live in right now, where if you make one mistake, you're out, or if you don't say the right thing or have the right language, you're done for. Or if you don't change everything right away and become like an anti-racist shining ray of glory immediately after you learned about white supremacy for the first time, that you, you don't have a space in all of this. And I would just say that I don't think it's a helpful posture and that we we figure out who we are so that we can be less harmful to ourselves and to others and to the planet, but that that takes some time. And so I would say that we need to be people who are careful to be gentle with ourselves yeah, and to be slow. Um, I've heard some of y'all say that you've binge listened to this podcast and I'm like, ah, don't do that. <laughs> like, because I'm taking like 10 years of deconstruction and consolidating it into a, a guide or like a, a path or a road or something. And I just think that we have to be careful and gentle with ourselves in how we learn so that we don't just deconstruct ourselves as we deconstruct our faith, because that at the end of the day isn't going to help us. Right. We do need to give ourselves um, credit where credit is due. Be kind. Yeah. And I think the encouragement from scripture is that Jesus doesn't invite people to follow him or to be a part of the work that he's doing who know everything. Mm-hmm. He actually chooses people who don't know anything and who continue to mess up over the three years that he's with them. And I love that. I love that in the model of Jesus, those who choose to be in don't choose to be in the way of Jesus just by knowing things. They do because they see something that's attractive and good about the way of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the inclusion of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And they test the way of Jesus and find it to be true. And some people stay yes. and some people go. He gathers crowds. He gives harder teachings. And sometimes the teaching is too hard for some of us and we have to step away. And sometimes... We choose to do that thing because we know it's going to be good for us and we practice our disciplines and we do all of that stuff to be spiritual people. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the way of Jesus is a process, not a destination. It's not just about like heaven. It's about living this eternal kind of life right now where all can be free and included and brought close to people to God and to the planet. Yes. And so with that, uh, I am wondering if you would share a little bit about your upcoming project, because I think it will be a yeah. great resource for people who are on this deconstruction journey. If you are, thank you so much. And if you are on this journey of, of deconstruction, I know we spent some time saying, do not do it alone. You know, find resources, find help, find aid as you extricate yourself from this uh, seemingly, um, I would say, abusive relationship. Um, with religion. Um, we are 
uh, creating a, a book. It's called the Deconstructionist Playbook. And um, we are pre-selling copies through a Kickstarter um, that will enable uh, our Bible app to continue to publish books uh, into the future. And we're looking at doing three titles this year, but we're starting off with uh, the, 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 blah, 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 the Deconstructionist Playbook um, because it is an anthology of some 50 plus authors who have written on these topics. They have written on deconstruction, they've written on reconstruction, and they've written on liberation theology, which is uh, hopefully that spot where like you know everything and you're just celebrating. Um, <laughs> but uh, liberation theology itself has, has quite a rich history um, mm -hmm. and uh, we're, we're putting all of that in, in a guidebook uh, to help those of you who want to know more um, to do that, and I just want to read some of the some of the themes that we'll be talking about are social justice and restoration. We'll be talking about uh, church religion and belief systems, um, deconstructing the Bible and God and God's pronouns, um, what it means to be a mystic Christian, and how we love those who uh, are engaging in interfaith um, interfaith studies and understanding. Um, and we do some work to just reframe God altogether. Um, it is going to be so amazing once y'all are able to pick up this book and read it. So I really hope that you'll go to the Kickstarter. Um, I think it's kickstarter.com slash the playbook um, and, and uh, get a copy. Make sure you get yours. Uh, we're trying to do 2000 and you should definitely be at least one of those because it's gonna be rad. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, y'all pick up a copy of that. That Kickstarter is live now, so you can go find it in the show notes and we'll make sure that, yeah, we have the information that you need to get there, especially as many of us enter into a season of reflection around Lent. I think deconstruction is going to be a key part of that. Yeah. And after that season, we're going to feel hungry for more guidance and more help on the journey. So yes. I really appreciate that. Is there anything else that you want to plug or is that kind of your... Uh... That's the thing. That's the thing that we're pushing. That's a big old project. <laughs> right. All of February, we really hope it gets funded. Um, and because we know that it's an important resource and um, it, it won't be the only time that, that folks uh, look at this and think, oh my gosh, I wish I, wish I could have one of those. So um, let's do it for now and let's do it for the future. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Randy, it's been so nice to sit and chat with you. You're so a fun good. person. <laughs> You're so smart. <laughs> That's very kind and generous of you. Thanks for Maybe overly me. so. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. Special shout out to my Patreon supporters. You all literally make this podcast happen and i'm so so grateful to get to do this work so thank you so much if you want to join our patreon community you can do so at patreon.com slash brandy nico for just five dollars a month you get some extra content and that five dollars is going to go much farther here soon as we launch in the next week our patreon exclusive reclaiming my theology podcast feed which will give an extra episode one to two episodes a month that go deeper onto topics that we can't get to on the regular show. And so this month, we're going to be starting off with white supremacy and the Enneagram. So if you're wondering what that's all about, feel free to join us over on Patreon for that launch coming up soon. We're also going to create a community space here pretty soon so folks can have a little bit more space to connect. So in all of that, 
I just want to say I'm grateful and that this is really a dream for me to get to do. I say it over and over again, but honestly, y'all, this community and all of you in it make me better and help all of us to do a little bit better together. At least that's what I hope. Who can know?